0: Hello, this is Saul Luckman. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Conversations on Saul Luckman Uncensored, sponsored by snooze dot awaken.com, resources for lucidity. For more information about my work, including a lot of cutting-edge free content, check out crowrising.com. I'm also on Telegram, where I'm sharing daily truth bombs at t.me slash Saul Luckman, and I'm absolutely crushing it on Substack at saulachman.substack.com. If you appreciate what I'm doing here and interviewing some of the greatest minds and hearts in the whole truth and nothing but community, please take a second to give this video and channel some love energy exchange. Comment, like, subscribe, and by all means, consider buying me a cup of coffee that I'll be sure to savor with a toast in your honor. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Deidre May from Johannesburg, South Africa. I first learned about her work through Dr. Tom Cowan. Deidre then contacted me after I blogged her amazing pandemic rap song, It Began. I was to learn she had an extraordinary blog called Between the Bands. That's also the title of a fantastic AIDS truth documentary she made. I encourage listeners to spend some quality time at her blog, which is betweenthebands.co.za. Welcome to the show, Deidre. How are you?
1: thank you so i'm very well and yourself
0: i'm i'm very well actually quite busy i'm going on a little road trip tomorrow so i'm i've been packing up a few things and i'm looking forward to that but i was also looking forward to our chat uh, having discovered your your really amazing body of work that's quite a a blog you've put together
1: thank you um I feel like it's a bit one-sided because I actually have so much more stuff on HIV and AIDS that um, I haven't actually put up on the, on the blog. Um, The film is there, a film I made, as you mentioned, between the bands, but um, yeah. So, so it is more COVID focused, but in fact, there is stuff that I should put up on HIV. For example, I've got a lot of uh, some of the chapters that I wrote on a dissertation, which was supposed to be for a master's degree, which I was unable to get. Um, What I did get was uh, a kind of education in censorship at university. Um, But, you know, um, in thinking about our conversation, I was going back through my notes on the epidemiology. Um, And that is one aspect that we may want to chat about because I see on your website, you've got a lot of links to really great content on the isolation issue. And I know that you had that wonderful conversation with... um, Dr. Mark Bailey recently, and you've also spoken to Sam Bailey. Um, and I, I think you pretty much summed it up there, right? The whole issue with isolation, where you said, you know, if you take a, if you take this virus away, you really take kind of the the possibility of future pandemics. Um, you know, the test falls away. The this horrible jab uh, poison that they're injecting falls away. And uh, you know, a huge edifice, um, a very dangerous and kind of weaponized part of medicine, um, which is the test. You know, falls away. Um, Virology is really, um, really, really dangerous, right?
0: Oh yeah, I would, I would agree. You know, it's, um, and we cannot make all kinds of jokes about it too. I know that uh, Dr. Sam had a line in her recent her most recent blog or video, which I blogged, and then we're talking about snooze to awaken.com here. And uh, it's called, her blog is uh, called Secrets of Virology, quote unquote, control experiments. And I think the line was, um, um, that's not science, that's virology.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's a a line, I actually quote her directly. She said, uh, in the song, where she she says, "Modern virology is nothing but faith-based speculation," right? Um,
0: did you write the words to the song? Because it wasn't clear to me. I, I didn't see um, a lot of information uh, about who did what with the song.
1: I did. Um, I, you know, it's my first attempt to do a rap song, so um, I didn't actually write it to a beat originally. So it was much longer, much wordier. It was about double the length, and then. Um i I had the idea it would be a song, but then I started to realize maybe it's more of a spoken poem, it's a poem, so I had to rework it and um I wasn't i I tried to find rappers to rap it, and then eventually I realized, okay, you know what this is, song is some people would find it controversial um and it is sort of part of the rap tradition. If you're going to write a rap song, you should you should pretty much you know um voice it yourself um so I ended up, because I couldn't find people to work with me, um, I actually ended up finding collaborators on a platform um, of professionals. Um, so they were professional people who opted not to be featured um, uh, in the you. song. Yeah. But I did, I do actually have their names on the blog um, because I just felt I had to uh, credit them because they they were incredible people to work with. And I was very, um, it was great that they actually agreed to work with me, you know.
0: Did you do it in studio or was this a virtual experiment?
1: Yeah, no, we were all over the, um, the producer was, is in um, Germany. The uh, co-rapper is in Ghana and um, the wonderful, the woman who does the um, chorus is in Hong Kong. <laughs> so it's, yeah, quite international.
0: And you, what what is your vocal role in that? I, uh, in the song I was wanting to play just a little tiny bit for the audience if that's okay with you I I, I know people are out there what's going on you know where do I find this song you can it's on her, bl- on her blog on Deidre's blog it began as the name of the song but do you mind if I just cut through the uh, you know the uh, I don't know the uh, ambiguity here and just play a, a minute or so of the song do I have your permission sure. to do that? of course all right just so that people have an idea because it's really cool it's very clever i knew immediately when i started listening to it that there was there was uh something very very cool going on here here
2: we go connect the dots make out your own mind
1: it began
2: so it's all
1: it will hide. 44 patients came down with pneumonia, which quickly turned into pandemic phobia when six died. But why the surprise the air in Wuhan is so far from utopia?
2: That pneumonia leads as a death disease. So why in Jan 2020 did the Chinese announce that the discovery of SARS-CoV-2 for UC?
1: It's no speculation. Before this was begun, there was preparation through Event 201 by Gates and the World Economic Forum. You might say a pandemic dry run.
2: While people were stuck in their homes locked up. Banks printed cash for their leads to snub up. Much of the world's property and assets a criminalization of state apparatus.
1: Small businesses brought to their knees. Millions in need, more dependency. Social movements give up their agency. Begging governments for a measly. B-I-G.
2: It was planned
1: long before
2: it began in Wuhan. For the crux is the viral identity scandal. They took but one crude bronchial sample on purified glue. Sequence, stuff were arranged, genetic pieces.
1: Intuition, no, no isolation proof. No electron micrograph was produced. See Dr. Bailey's take on isolation. Virology is but faith based speculation.
2: But this did not stop Drosthen and team to validate a PCR test. 14 days after the virus was allegedly seen. Check the bogus science, you know what I mean. In digital
1: creations released by China, plus generation of an artificial primer why were med associations deceived genetic bits do not prove infection or disease isolation
0: failed to but it's bad for the narration all right I'm gonna stop it there so that I don't play your whole song but it's very hard to stop it it's super catchy
1: thanks Saul.
0: <laughs> yeah so many great lines uh, I mean I, I I love it from a poetic standpoint and I think it's very well realized as a as a song I love the fact that it combines kind of hip-hop and rap with more um classical rock style, uh, delivery, uh, that is really, really nice.
1: Thanks. Um, yeah, what's funny about it is I'm not actually, I'm not musical at all. So I almost feel like an imposter, you know, and my friends, I mean, I think for my, some of my friends, it was, it would be, it would have been the last thing they would have imagined, you know? Um, but I think the reason, w- um, what I'm happy about this, doing this song is, I mean, I don't know if you found the same thing. Um, you know, so often if you have a conversation around these issues, it immediately um, turns into sort of some kind of ideological divide, you know, that opens up between you and other people. Um, so I found it, you know, it very alienating holding this, um, this perspective. Um, and even in medical freedom movements, you know, um, the issue of the isolation issue is also to some degree taboo, right? Um, so The song is what I like about having done the song is that when you make when you go and record the song and you put it out there, your the energy that you're putting out into the world with the song is um, is not divisive, you know, Um, and it's not in relation to somebody else's perspective in the moment when you're doing it. So um, for some reason, it just feels like the song has allowed me to have to to be able to hold some dissident space in the world to to say, you know, just put it out there, you don't have to agree with me, I'm not going to try and convince you, and I have tried to convince people in the past, and um, that can be very challenging and divisive as well. Um, But I'm going to just hold the space, you know. Um, And also some of my friends who are very creative, because I know a lot of artists, you know, writers, um, actors, etc, who would always ignore posts um, that I would, you know, when I was sharing stuff around SARS or before that HIV. Um, you know, they responded to the song. So, <laughs> yeah, and maybe one other thing I also like about the song, and and it was part of the reason why I decided to try and create a song, was that there's this idea that we as lay people are not able to understand this high-level science, you know. Um, and we can. <laughs> and if we do manage to start understanding it, you know, um, I wanted to bring... My understanding and express my understanding of this, um, kind of of the 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 yeah about how weak it is, um, and and be, and make a song that is deliberately very technical, um, obviously very summarized, but very summarized and very technical, to kind of put myself out there saying you know what we as lay people we do have the right if we're being told by the medical profession you know um that we can die from these sort of you know that these these infectious agents are potentially lethal and um, they want us to take a non-specific test and then accept a diagnosis for this and accept these very dangerous um you know medicines or you know whatever they are, the the poison jab that they want to give us, et cetera, that they don't even know what's in it, you know that we you know I, it was really an attempt to, um, yeah, to just bring it down to to layman's level, from one layperson, from one person to other people, you know, um in a very direct way to to talk about, yeah, the way I see things. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, some of it's technical, like you said, and some of it's kind of hard hitting. We didn't, we didn't hear the end of the song, but you know, just quoting the, the the last little bit, you know, as the COVID scam dwindles, the global elite may give the people some mucosal relief, which is hilarious. But this will not stop the Great Reset, Agenda 2030, climate change are next, or a new virus that causes bleeding to hide the injuries from their needling. The perpetrators must be exposed; otherwise, the agenda is only postponed. Connect the dots, just as we detox. Make up your own mind. Here comes Marburg. Oh no, monkeypox! <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's like yeah. So a lot of it's really hard-hitting kind of poetry um, that makes a point almost viscerally, and then some of it is sort of intellectual, and it's a nice combination of the two registers.
1: Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, it's great to be, I mean, it was, it was such fun. I'm just dying, I just wish I had more time at the moment. I just want to do more of this, you know. Um, well,
0: what's been the feedback from other people? I know, you know, when um when I blogged about it, I, I quoted, I mean, I summarized what Cowan said, and he said that my summary was, you know, the state of so-called biological science is pretty darn rotten when rap artists can see the obvious holes in virology that even virologists themselves and their apologists remain... And then I put purposely, question mark, oblivious to.
1: That I was rolling on the sofa when I saw that um, because he didn't read my email properly. I had e- I had uh, got in touch um, hoping he would share my song. And then, um, you know, so I had given a bit of background that I had been doing some research and I'd made a film of HIV and AIDS and he didn't read all that. So it was very funny to be um, referred to as the young rappers from South Africa, you know, when, as, <laughs> as I meant <mentioned. laughs> Right, (laughs) You know, because I mean, I I think it's a bit misleading because it gave the impression that, you know, um, some young and I'm not saying they couldn't, but, you know, that some people would just very quickly um, get a grasp of this. And I'm not saying you can't, but um, maybe it's not the same for maybe some people did get a grasp very quickly. But for me. you know, when it came to HIV and AIDS, it was an arduous journey to actually get to the point where I felt confident around my knowledge on it. You know, and as a as a secondary researcher tracking the primary researchers, um, and and gaining confidence in that. Um, so it was not an it, it was a very conscious, a very engaged, and a very dedicated kind of um, quest to understand what was going on with HIV. You know, I'm not sure if if it was the same with you. Um, so when when SARS came along, I immediately knew it was a complete, um, it was completely fabricated. But um, with HIV, I, I came to it late. It was only from around 2004, after I was challenged by somebody, that I started looking into it. And it took me quite a few years to really get a, a grasp of, on it and to come to this um, understanding of, you know, that it was not at all what, it, what we were led to believe it was.
0: Right. I mean, I, I came of age, you know, in the in the AIDS era. I remember being in college when I first heard about it, you know, for some 60 minute show. And, um, you know, and even for a long time later, every once in a while, I would I would encounter someone talking about the problems with isolation or that it, that HIV was not really the cause of this condition, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, I found it hard to, to really pay attention to that, maybe for personal reasons. I mean, I'm an artist and a writer and I have so many friends who are part of, you know, uh, perhaps marginalized communities, people, uh, you know, with different lifestyles. And, you know, I just, I didn't want to hear it really for a long time. And it took me getting sick from, you know, my own set of jabs and having a kind of just nightmarish uh, experience of what I would, you know, just loosely term autoimmune disease for a long time after that, which I I think is probably what a lot of people with AIDS are experiencing. I I went through it, is what I'm trying to say in my own way. Um, that I had to I had to look at it. And and then I and then it began to really become obvious and the, the official narrative started to fall apart because I realized what what was creating a lot of these issues was just the injections themselves and i mean just i don't mean this is well, this is pre covid of course i mean way back in the day people were getting shot up with a bunch of stuff that was making them sick and they were taking other drugs and other uh, tr- and the, the treatments themselves were contributing to that so it was kind of a toxic soup that was destroying people's immune systems or even if you don't want to go down the immune system route it was toxifying them to such an extent that it was killing them
1: yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, even the you know, um, doctors even acknowledged that um, the do- the doses of um, AZT, one of the early antiretrovirals, was was so high that they've actually admitted that that was killing the patients. You know, so it was a self fulfilling prophecy in some ways. Um, and, and so yeah, I mean, the
0: doctors, I mean, are out there actually saying this. And I've heard this too. I mean, by far, we're talking about a minority here, right? But still, there are those who have admitted this.
1: Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, the film I made between the bands um, goes quite a bit into the um, epidemiology. Um, because, you know, I mean, you've touched so much on the isolation issue, you know, uh, maybe that's not really useful for this discussion but you know what happens with doctors they'll say okay well um, okay we can see there's some problems with the isolation but you know when you look at the statistics and when you look at Africa I mean obviously there's a new cause of disease you know Um, and so I think that's where my film is useful in the sense that it looks at the research um, specifically of two people uh, Rodney Richards and Chris Rawlins and how they analyzed the data, the South African epidemiological data, and also um, looked at the the, uh, sort of retrospectively through studies over various times. They looked back at the data because as time goes on and you've got more data, it became even more and more obvious that the whole narrative um, that was being put forward in South Africa, because we were considered it's that in itself is, is absurd that we were this outlier country. You know, if it was a a sexually um, transmitted virus, why would one country be so um, burdened? Um, that in itself is completely illogical, but that notwithstanding, um, so their work, I think, is very useful in the sense of, you know, um, debunking the whole epidemiological side that there was a new um, cause of death, you know, but a lot of the mm. sort of precursors for why SARS became accepted, I think, is uh, was set in that era, you know, for example, you had, you had this idea already starting there where you could have a case um, without symptoms and you could have, and it was asymptomatic spread, you know, so you had to be fearful of everybody around you. Um, And then of course you had a non-specific test. Um, And then you had um, the epidemiological representation, which was largely based on models. Um, So, you know, that whole, all of that interlocking, um, horridness was
0: was yeah, mm. yeah, so you, you would I guess the question for me that always comes up is I see so much forethought in these these pandemics, you know, just the word itself pandemic that we've coined, yes, yes, tremendous planning. And and forethought moving moving these things in moving these possibilities into the public realm, you know, just like you said, I mean, we had to go through conditioning to be able to accept these absurdities that you could you could be an asymptomatic carrier of a non-existent particle that's somehow lying dormant in your system, that kind of thing. I mean, it's all so incredibly absurd. Do you think that there is there is uh coordination and collaboration going on behind the scenes to bring these things about?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we know there was Event 201, right? And, um, you know, then the Rockefeller, if you go back to 2010, a lot of people know about that Rockefeller document that um, spoke about um, what was going to be happening now. But then at the same time, it is an interesting question, this, because, and maybe I can um, bring it back to South Africa. Please, Uh, please. yeah, in the sense that, okay, if you, for example, with the, it, how did they know there would be contingent factors that they could leverage off? And I'll give you an example, if it's all planned. So, I mean, maybe, so my sense of it is maybe, is that as far as possible, they will plan it, but they also, because they've got a, because they have, you know, they know, I think, yeah, the, the, they know that they can Let's say they know that viruses don't exist and they're going to leverage off that. They will also be um, aware of contingent factors and they will try and utilize them to their advantage. So in South Africa, what happened was the beginning of the AIDS era was allegedly in the mid 1990s, right? And um, what was interesting about that is we had just in 1994, was the official end of apartheid. So for the first time, we had a democratically elected leader in South Africa. and um we did, but we didn't have good central statistics because in the I'm trying to not go into too much detail, but just to just to create one example. um in in a, in apartheid, South Africa, you had what was called bunch stands, where um when there were the forced removals of people, um, black people were forced into these areas called Bantustans. And if they wanted to move around in the rest of South Africa, they needed a passbook. So, after um, when apartheid ended, then these Bantustans had to be reintegrated into the country. And so the government was like, okay, we need to really improve our um, central statistics. And they had very successful um, strategies to assist rural people to be able to register births and deaths for example before they'd have to go to the nearest town now they could go to their chief or they had mobile vans and and stuff so when they started testing in south africa with a non specific test and the numbers went up on this non specific test um and they were saying oh look at this there's a lot of people testing at the same time you had a steep increase in death and was a massive debate that would was to some degree um being ventilated in the country around the completion of death registration so what that means is the percentage of deaths actual deaths registered so they there was a big dispute around what that baseline was in the mid 1990s and one of our um chief statisticians dr Suleiman bar who was an expert in completion of death registration he was he he uh, estimated that the rural percentage of actual deaths that were being registered in mid, in the mid-1990s was 37%, as low as 37%. Mm. So you can imagine, if you had very successful um, strategies to get more deaths registered, you would if, you would expect to have a steep increase in deaths, which there was. But then you had other statistical bodies in South Africa, um, like, for example, actuarial scientists who um, who were working through the Medical Research Council and the Actuarial Society of South Africa, who had a completely different uh, perspective of what that baseline was. Um, and so this, this played out for a few years. Um, but what would happen, for example, the Medical Research Council would bring out a paper and then prematurely you would get um in our in our in one of the biggest sunday newspapers you would have um you'd have a headline that would go young gifted and dead and you'd have this absolutely chilling um projection that within 10 years 50% of adults in south africa would be infected with this alleged virus and alongside this they would be talking about um you know the increase in deaths um, but behind the scenes, what was not so visible was that there was a big dispute between, as I mentioned, the Medical Research Council and Statistics South Africa um, around the baseline. And Statistics South Africa said to the Medical Research Council, we think your study is badly flawed. And what was also interesting about the Medical Research Council was that they had brought out a paper. And I'll wrap this up soon because you can That's go fast. on and on.
0: That's Sorry? Fast. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, so so they had brought out a paper which had given the estimates of what they thought the CDR was, the, the completion of death registration. But then in their own paper, they said they will reveal how they had got to this estimate in another paper, which was forthcoming. And they even put it as a title in the footnote. But this footnoted alleged paper that was still going to come out was never published. So... <laughs> you know this is the kind of thing that was going on behind the scenes and then on when you take the the kind of the the more international level you of course had the who and unaids bringing out models around south africa and those were the absolute worst the most horrifying then you had as i mentioned um you know like the medical research council bringing out also horrific models and the Actuarial Society of South Africa, very terrifying models of how many people would die. And over time, these were successfully downsized, you know. Um, but there was this strong narrative that you had had this kind of steep increase of deaths. And because of the antiretrovirals coming into the public health system, this, the deaths had then plateaued around 2006. Um, but this has been highly disputed. Um and I do go into this in the film. If anybody's interested, if there are any actual sci- scientists um, out there, go and have a look at these papers for yourself and make up your own mind, you know, um, in terms of Richard's and Rawlins' work. Because what Chris Rawlins, for example, did, he looked at different, one organization was doing um, surveys, population-based surveys of what number of in the population were testing positive over time. The results of that was then feeding into the models for the Actuarial Society of South Africa, and they were basing their mortality um, predictions on that. And then the Medical Research Council was also bringing out um, burden of disease um, studies. But when he looked at the these the the mortality and the prevalence rates, especially when you look at cohorts moving through time, you know, over over successive years, he found that. There was no mathematical relationship between this. And another, another thing that happened with the statistics, a very critical thing, the, at, at a point after 2000, the government, uh, Stat- Statistics South Africa, brought out um, provincial data, whereas before it had only been national data. And Rawlins looked at that data, and what he found was that you did not have the correlation you would expect between Provinces that a high had a high um, prevalence rate and mortality rate, but what you did have is that the more rural provinces had an increase in a much higher increase in death, which is what you would expect because that is where the government had had their strategies to increase um, the completion the the registration of deaths. So I just mentioned that as an example. There are many more one could go into, but. You know, um, the deep state or cabal or whatever would not have necessarily been able to predict that contingent factor, um, which was highly, which they leveraged off. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it was a if we'd had, for example, if if the AIDS era had not come in at the same time as us as a country starting to um, have central centralized statistics, it would have been. I don't think South Africa would then necessarily have become this. country with one of the highest burdens you know um because Um, yeah i mean you wouldn't have been able to because a lot of other african countries for example don't have um as much testing for example as we do so um these statistics were based on surveys um so yeah I mean, do they plan everything? I don't think so. I think they they leverage where they can. they leverage off where they can to a degree, you know. and uh, another thing maybe to say about that is that they also like they understand that some people will wake up to certain levels of the truth, right? So some people will um realize that there's something that's not real about this, but they won't necessarily go to the does this virus exist? Is there a new cause of um death or is it horrifically sadly, as in tragically as in south africa's case that in apartheid you had diseases related to poverty and those diseases continued into the um post-apartheid era you know there was no new cause of death people were still dying of poverty malnutrition lack of sanitation etc etc um but you know um A lot of people then got stuck, I think. Uh, You get stuck at this, you know, where, what is the cause? If it's not, is it a laboratory? Is it made in a laboratory? Was it injected into people? I mean, possibly, yes. I mean, maybe people were, it was partially related to poisons in jabs, you know, Um, that was a factor as well. Um, And then you can get people stuck there. You know, you can get people stuck in that area of trying to figure out what is the cause of this virus. Um, And that also, in its own way, helps to um, entrench this idea that viruses are real, you know, Um, because, yeah, I mean, now with SARS, we have this whole issue of was it lab, was it zoonotic spillover, was it lab, you know, the whole gain of function, all of that. Well, I mean, if they had created a lab virus, it wasn't very successful, right? Because the epidemiology doesn't bear out that there was a viral epidemic. So, It just pushes people into being, into having this reinforced notion that viruses exist
0: either way. I mean, think about, you know, what, how they, how, what I would call the deep state operates. So you have the Kennedy assassination, right? And so we know that some aspect of, of the deep state was almost certainly involved in that, but what they do is they spin out a dozen or so competing narratives of, you know, we're talking conspiracy theories here, you know, even even if' creating the conspiracy theories, then they're denigrating conspiracy theorists, but it, it serves a purpose to muddy the waters and make it so that nobody will ever know. It's like Joe Pesci and Oliver Stone's uh, um, JFK film. He said it's a riddle wrapped mm-hmm. in an enigma inside a mystery. Nobody will ever figure this out, you know. So um, I think that's kind of where we are with, on the ground with this is they're muddying the water, and they're creating all kinds of narratives, and you have other people, whether they're connected to the deep state or not, coming up with their own theories. You know, you is it snake venom in the water, and all this just craziness, really? Um, when when you uh, what happens when you actually boil it down to the virus and the isolation question, it becomes crystal clear that there's no there there.
1: Yeah, you know, but I think um, people and and maybe you know people feel like they've seen they've almost kind of the virus is so real to them because um because of that kind of combination of being presented with this absolutely terrifying picture combined with um images of that relate to the illness you know um so for example in when I mean, we all—you, I'm sure—you also remember from the '80s, right? Um, kind of before AIDS was allegedly a big thing in Africa. You had these pictures of gaunt people with lesions on their face. You know, people who had been getting kaposi's sarcoma, right. a very rare tumor, right? And and that was linked to, um, you know, it. It was later become more widely known that most of the um, those cases of um, AIDS. Um, those people had were heavy drug abusers, you know, Um, and again, that links to terrain, it was their environment or something they were ingesting that was most likely what was causing that. In Africa, you had very poor people who were completely out of the spotlight, um, you know, probably dying of tuberculosis in some peri-urban place, and now suddenly um, the media was full of images of these people that were dying you know and um, it it gave the impression that this was something new and then when you combined it with this erroneous um, representation of the epidemiology and you combined it with this uh, terrifying idea that um, perfectly healthy seeming people are walking around carrying this deadly virus um, you know you create it's it's you know the levels the degrees of identification and so that's why i think in south africa um despite the fact that actually we don't have such a high vaccination rate which is fantastic compared to many other countries in the world um despite a massive propaganda campaign like everywhere else um it's sort of surprising to me in a way because um i mean if you it's interesting it's it's less taboo to be a um a dissident in terms of COVID and SARS than it would be to be um, a dissident when it came to HIV and AIDS, you know, I mean, you were called a denialist, you know, mm. um, I mean, I remember in 2008, when I was trying to do a degree at university, um, because the student, the film I made was actually a student film, and I held it back out of the public domain for quite a while, because I was, a f- I was concerned that the university would um, not allow, they would actually clamp it, close down on it, because, you um, if you do a film as part of a deliverable for a degree, the university actually own the film. Um, but, oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, I was talking about, um, yes, the way deni- so-called denialists were treated. Um, I remember going to a um, a conference, I, I phoned them and I said, I'm a journalist, I want to come um, to this conference. And it was a big activist organization, called Treatment Action Campaign. It was their big national meeting. So it was um a couple of thousand of peop- people from different parts of the um, country in a room and their leader who is who so he was literally treated almost like a saint, um Zahi Ahmad, um who had who had um tested positive for HIV and he had said he will not take any antiretrovirals until everybody in South Africa had access. And then there was um then you know um the government was forced to give um antiretroviral to make antiretrovirals available long stories um i do cover some of it in the film um and then he there was actually rumors that he had I had seen a, a, a clip of him where he he could barely speak he was slurring his words he could he, he was barely able to actually string a sentence together. it appeared that it was the antiretrovirals that was slowing him down and then a few years later he's looking very healthy and um, he's very coherent and he walked onto the stage so there were rumors going on that maybe he had quietly without um, dis- divulging it, and I can't say if this is true or not, had stopped taking the antiretrovirals because they were having such a bad effect on him. But he got onto the stage and he he said two things. The first two things he said was, number one, I'm only alive because I take my antiretrovirals. Number two, this is the year that we are going to extinguish to the last traces of denialism in this country and i was quaking in my shoes i thought if i had to stand up now and express a dissident position i'd probably be mobbed you know what i mean so wow i mean it was yeah, yeah it was the the and and this was like years after the most intense um, you know um part atmosphere i mean you know and so so i mean the, the reason why i mentioned the story is just the the sense of identification you know um how powerful uh, identification was with um, the whole idea that HIV causes AIDS. I mean, like a religious, like a religious dogma, you know? Um,
0: I was just going and, to say and, that the, yes. you know, the people in the science, the health truth community who are still kind of pro-virus, pro even pro-vaccine in a general sense, you know, they, mm. they, they have weaponized this kind of connection to attack people who are questioning the virus. And they've done it very, very, uh, very well and very cleverly and slyly. Um, but they—they they are absolutely working people's emotions on these on these issues, you know, to basically make people reason with their guts on this, as opposed to actually using their minds and their eyes. And uh, anyway, it's 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 a bit of a it's a bit of a travesty. But it's it's you, this technique is used at all levels but certainly it, it is another one of the there's the it's a control technique used by these science gatekeepers
1: right right so yes to to limit the discourse right the the the, the kind of um yeah what yep. is allowed yeah i
0: mean and, you have uh, people you know, like steve kirsch and jeremy hammonds who are experts at this experts. Right.
1: Right, right. And one wonders, yeah, there's always a question, um do they actually um truly are they truly holding the position that they appear to espouse, right, or are they controlled opposition?
0: always so, always the question. I mean, you know i'm and I'm not speaking specifically about anyone right now, but you know, I always say that you know, are they on the payroll, you know? yeah which i mean because... They, they payroll because i believe that such a thing if effectively exists i'm not saying there is a single payroll but i mean there are there are tentacles you know within tentacles here and there are lots of people connected to this you know this truth-sucking octopus this vampire squid to uh quote my, matt taibbi
1: right yeah um yeah, I mean, I've I've wondered about South African doctors, and of course, this goes back to HIV and AIDS as well, because, um, you know, and also this, yeah, because there are there are a lot of HIV and AIDS doctors who were, you know, are really were seen as heroes. You know, they were really the way they were um, they were put on pedestal, um, and and literally almost, yeah like truly deferred to as the most um, exemplary people in our society, you know, um, but, and I, I, and again, this is again, a very contingent thing, but, you know, um, we had apartheid and then we went into post apartheid and, and um, Anthony Brink, a magistrate in my film, talks a lot about this and well, he mentions this in the film, he touches on the idea that, um the the AIDS issue was the first kind of cri- nation building crisis as a kind of rainbow nation um, after apartheid ended, and you know it was uh, there was this idea that okay we had apartheid and there were it was mainly affecting black people poor black people and now HIV is also affecting mainly poor black people and we are not going to do them wrong again you know what I mean. Um, but there's there's also a very sort of um, a, a kind of an almost a colonial perspective to that, you know, and it was very racist. Um, this idea that it didn't make sense at all. That um, I'm div- I'm digressing now, but yeah, that that it was that black people were more pr- promiscuous than than white people, you know, when when there was no there was no proof of that whatsoever. But coming back to this idea of identification and I, I mean, I, I do think there are doctors um, like Professor Glenda Gray, who's now the head of our Medical Research Council, very, very influential woman. She used to be the head of a perinatal unit um, where um, healthy um, pregnant women would go to, to to this antenatal clinic, and then they would get tested for HIV. You're much more likely to test positive on their non-specific test if you're pregnant because of all the antibodies teeming inside you and then based on this you would be put on antiretrovirals you know Um, and yeah I mean I think I I think in her case for example um, that she really did think she was doing good Um, but when you look at the payroll situation Um, her units and a lot of uh, the AIDS research in our country has links to, you can link it to Bill Gates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So maybe it's a combination of, I think in some situations, it's a combination of funding, but also kind of allegiance, you know, Um, for example, Glenda Gray, and Fauci, you know, used to hobnob at conferences together at AIDS conferences, and there's this kind of sense of, you know, you are part of, you're on the upper echelons of the hierarchy in medicine. You know, um, so my 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 feeling is that um, a lot of the doctors who are and or or, you know, that these influential figures like uh, Professor Glenda Gray are, um, they were very ambitious and they were kind of almost sucked in also through their ambition, you know, that they became associated very high up the ladder and there's this sort of mutual kind of respect between each other's work. um, And they don't really question things. It's, it's crazy, but.
0: Yeah, I I, I, I would agree with everything you said. I mean, I think it's, you know, we're looking at a very complex issue where some people are in the know, other people are in denial. And um, you know, I mean, really, but I think we've crossed we've crossed a certain Rubicon in the discussion with with a lot of the very, very damning information that's been shared by people like the Baileys and Dr. Andrew Kaufman and Cowan and a lot of other people at this point in time, where we can't even have this conversation. Uh, anymore, or we 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 can't actually get to having a real conversation about the virus issue and about virology in general by people who engage in all kinds of ad hominem, atta- uh, hominem attacks and and diversionary tactics and really flawed logic uh, across the board to not have that discussion and to denigrate people who are asking these important questions. We're really you know in a situation where we've gone from um you know wondering uh, whether these people are on the payroll to having that not even matter anymore because now you can simply say well whether they are or they're not they're not intellectually honest
1: yeah 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 and uh, yeah i mean i think i think academics do bear a responsibility you know uh, i work um for an organization of um that is you know, um, looking at environmental issues, and it's very ironic to me that my colleagues are completely close to this issue. Um, I created a two-hour presentation on it uh, and they wouldn't even watch it. Wow. Um, yeah, and then and then in the wider circle, you have these, for example, academics at the university where I was unable to get my degree, um, who they are sociologists um, and they're also, they have immense influence with trade unions because they help coordinate the, um, the, the trade, the, the union of trade unions, you know, so they will, for example, two years ago, they, they had a, um, a webinar and it was allegedly around access and safety of the jabs. So I had prepared a lot of stuff around the safety issues to throw into the um, chat, which I did during the webinar, and they completely ignored it. And all they spoke about was access. Jeremy Corbyn was actually on that uh, webinar. Um, you know, he's he was the um, he's a politician in Britain, um, and it was just fascinating to me. I've actually written to them and I've said to them, "Listen, just." You, I've, I've challenged them on that. I've said, you bear a big responsibility. The least you should do is look at the other side, you know, because you limiting, you are limiting the, 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 what people think is acceptable to, um, to discuss in, in the public domain, you know, on these issues. Um, but I, yeah, then I, I, what I got back was um, a bland response saying, we, we do appreciate that everyone should have their own op- opinion. You know, but that doesn't mean that um, we should actually engage on our opinions in any way, you know, especially in a detailed fashion, right?
0: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it was happening during the during the height of the, the pandemic where we would contact, you know, the local council people having to, you know, on the subject of masks, for example, and we were bringing a lot of data to the table about how harmful masks can be in a variety mm. of ways, and we would get these kind of bland uh, NPC non-player character responses, you know, from these mm. these, these stuffed suits, you know, uh, in a very similar way. And it's just it, it's absolutely um, just infuriating if you if you know if you're caught up in all of that. I mean, I, I eventually just mm. kind of walked away from even having those conversations with any of these people because I realized that you know, I'm not even sure that I'm dealing with a, a person in some ways. I don't know what's going on there. They're certainly not not my kind of person, you know, so I can maybe we're just different species or something like that. I have no idea, but I came away feeling kind of, you know, an existential crisis about who are these people walking around speaking, you know, different languages. I mean, are we actually looking at, at um, people living in just absolutely different realities are we living in some kind of simulation where the people some of the people out there aren't actually even real they're functions of the simulation which is wanting to bend things in a certain direction and actually a lot of my research as uh, odd as this may sound over the recent you know last couple of years has very much tended in this direction i'm i'm i've been i've been willing to entertain simulation theory i think it, it it's one way of explaining maybe uh, how Things could be coordinated so uh, meticulously and across many years. If if there's mm. something non-human that's directing uh, the flow of events, uh, that yeah. you know that would make a lot of things suddenly make sense.
1: Right. Yeah, that is scary territory, huh? Um, because it feels like you're. Yeah, I mean, you know, that the kind of foundations of your existence start to come into question you know this idea of what is real and what is not is probably one of the most scary
0: questions you know it can be very empowering i have found because as i as i've gone down this rabbit hole and again you know this is a bit of a different discussion but i'm I'm trying to link it back to the the pandemic and the pandemic because we started talking about these things being planned in advance and i've been wrestling with a question for a very long time as I looked into things like uh, the, the, the notion of, of um, who the controllers of the reality are. You know, the yes. ancient Gnostics had this idea that they were these archons. And some people said, well, that just means leaders. But other people looked at the same text and said, no, it, it strongly implied that these are like off-world or uh, beings that uh, exist in a different dimension or they operate differently in some way. They, they may have different lifespans. And so then it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from that exploration to considering the simulation question and what if archons are aspects of the simulation or are the creators of the simulation or somehow somehow run it because we were talking about planning and time, the archons were known as the lords of time. Right. (laughs) So... It's just a fascinating discussion. I throw that in because as we're digging around, trying to figure out, you know, who is the soulless creature named Fauci? What is he, right? Because, you know, it just doesn't seem like a real person to me. I'm sorry. And a lot of them feel that way to me. And maybe they're not, you know? And it's at least worth considering that they're not, that they literally are NPCs, non-player characters. (laughs) (laughs)
1: well I I, I'm not really sure about that but um to come back to this idea of time um I I must try and find that link if I find it I'll send it to you um but in relation to 9-11 for me is quite enigmatic and um somebody put together um an hour and a half it was a full hour and a half of various clips that went back to as far back as the 1940s, where it was already being embedded into popular culture. The programming that this event would take place, mm-hmm. that these towers would be um, destroyed by airplanes.
0: Right, right.
1: Actually, um, this is a bit of a digression, but we had a very, um, but it's not not really. But um, this idea of precognition and what's going to happen. Um, a our foremost um, Zulu Sannyasin, which is um, a healer, Krido mm-hmm. Muntwa, um, he, he's now deceased. Um, yeah, familiar with him. Okay, well, I went to go and vi- visit one of his villagers um, in Johannesburg um, a couple of years ago with some friends, and we walked into one of the huts, and on the wall, he had painted a picture in 1973 um, of, that he had already seen in a vision, that these the towers would be um would be destroyed and he also had in the one corner he had a drawing that looked like Osama bin Laden and he also had a skull um on the beach so um yeah I mean it's interesting that you know anyway like he seemed to have some vision of it but um but that, that, docu- that that put together of those different clips for me was very fascinating. Going back to the 40s, like a children's comic book of this child on the beach playing with these castles. And it right. was already being embedded into the culture that these towers would be
0: collapsed. Right. Um, maybe,
1: you you yeah. can
0: see that in so many different ways. I mean, e- either there's a kind of morphic field or or maybe there's lots of people behind closed doors doing all of these crazy things and they're they're messaging each other or, you know they're using pneumatic tubes to send messages messages and this goes on for centuries and centuries and centuries or maybe there's like a morphic field some kind of etheric blueprint that we're tapping into the akashic record whatever some somehow that's that's holding plans or templates or blueprints for reality but maybe maybe we're just talking about some kind of computer program that's running here I've I've talked about Occam's uh-huh. razor a lot in this discussion, and um, right. you know, so it's this principle that the simplest explanation, when there's one, you know, there's two or more potential explanations, that the simpler or the simplest one would be probably correct. And so, if it looks and feels like a simulation, maybe it is.
1: Sure, <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of a weighty existential question, right?
0: It is a little bit. It is a little bit. Now, I want to just return before we close out here. You've done this. You've done this. Uh, I love the song. Uh, the um, I, I'm going to put the link to the um, to your documentary uh, in the um, in our show notes, and that's been translated into German and Russian. Are there any other languages it's, that it's been translated into?
1: no just those
0: two the, the subtitles anyway given the subtitles and then there's right. lots of links in there like if you want to go check out just in the uh, in the link that i will provide you can follow through links to get to chris rollins's um articles of the stuff that he was writing about there's stuff in there about anthony brink uh, information. There's also this wonderful, well, wonderful, this uh, enlightening little story here uh, about this uh, a woman from Botswana who got off the antiretrovirals and started feeling better. That's pretty interesting. That's a part of the film. Um, definitely a lot going on there. And you can just you can hit play right here on the on this page and and watch the uh, documentary. Yes. And I wanted to ask you if you have other projects in in the works.
1: Um, I'd love to. Um, well, I, I I want to become an entrepreneur. I mean, I think a lot of us are thinking about, you know, I work for a, an organization. So, um, yes, I want to become self sufficient. I'm moving. I'm going to move out of Johannesburg, move to a smaller town. Ta- town, try to focus more into like becoming part of a community, gardening have my own business nice. Nice. and free up time to do more writing. Cause it was so much fun. I would love to make a film about money. Actually. I know there are some good ones, but maybe I can look at it from a South African lens because that's of course, one of the key pillars um, that is enslaving us. Um, and I'd love to write more music. In fact, actually Sol, you know, I would also love to do an experimental film, but this is just, I don't know if I would, but the whole story of, um, The making of that film is possibly even more interesting than the film in terms of drama, you know. Um, But no, that probably won't do it as a
0: fiction, as as a as a script for as a screenplay for a a, a fictionalized version of what happened behind the scenes.
1: Well, I was thinking because you know, I just wish I'd had a secret camera. You know, (laughs) when you walk into a room and you're trying to do a presentation, and this is a formal kind of situation at university, and the person. You literally start speaking and he stands up and he's foaming at the mouth, you know. Oh my god. Splattering, saying, How can anybody still think that HIV doesn't cause AIDS? You know what I mean? This like the the kind of the emotional sort of I mean it's it's not that relevant anymore, maybe, because now we've got SARS. Although our, we're still in a situation where South African South Africa is spending billions of Rand every year. On um, antiretrovirals, these poisonous drugs, you know, Um, and this they would there's so many better ways to spend money Um, or maybe, I mean, climate change, right, climate change is also another yeah. yeah, I wouldn't, I, I think it would be interesting to do something on climate change or, or you could also do a, a film where you sort of juxtapose what's happening with climate change and what's happening with SARS, you know, because there's so many similarities. It's again, it's all based on models. Models are also such a um, useful tool in their pocket.
0: Oh, it's but I guess that it, yeah, you're right. There yeah. are many, many connections between the climate change narrative and the virology narrative. yeah. You know, and I was going guess- to you that um, have you, I was going to ask you actually if you've heard of Substack.
1: Yes, 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 yes.
0: Because we're doing a um, we're doing a a, a uh, what we're calling a terrain train, uh, starting in October. And I, I created a blog, and it was calling uh, content creators who are questioning germ theory. And these are people yes. who have a blog on Substack, which is really easy to start, and it's very easy to monetize if that's something you wanted to do. And you could even transfer a lot of your existing content over to Substack. And if if you wanted to uh, participate, for example, you would just put your name on the list and then you would just share the blog with people during October and any of your mailing lists and that kind of thing. But it's a wonderful place where you can eventually monetize your content and do quite well with it. And, it's, and it incentivizes you to write. It's a very nice writing environment. You get a lot of feedback. Um, I would certainly... Uh, look at it. If I were, you know, wanting to do more writing and wanting to figure out a way to make that uh, remunerative,
1: thanks for that. Um, I actually did start a profile recently, so. Um, but uh, yes, thanks for the encouragement. And it's very interesting how you, um, you know, how how many diverse platforms and how many diverse things you're involved with. Um, and I, I look forward to exploring your work more too.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, if you do make it over to Substack, I'm I'm at uh, solluckman.substack.com. And if you scroll down in my post, you'll see um, a post on the terrain train if that's something you're interested in. But in any case, feel free to connect with me there.
1: Definitely. And you know, Sol, um, an idea I had in mind years ago, which I think also would be quite interesting at some point, maybe we could consider something like a virtual gallery where we have artwork, In the virtual gallery which is linked to um to our um you know analyses and refutation of germ theory
2: oh
0: that would be interesting yeah that's a you know you could organize something like that on various platforms including substack where you would you would bring people in from this this growing community my idea was to kind of create more conversation around the problems with virology and germ theory And to create more of a sense of community with people having these conversations and commenting on each other's blogs and sharing their readerships and that kind of thing, so that that could actually then evolve into related spaces, very much like what you're talking about.
1: It's a great idea, you know, and I I mean, I was quite nervous about this conversation. And then I, I thought to myself wait a moment, um, this is a friendly conversation, you know, the reason why I'm nervous is because I'm used to having very unfriendly conversations, you know what I mean, or they, they end up, yeah, being divisive. So, well, um, one I of the think-
0: things a lot of people have realized, and, and maybe you've realized this too, is that you just can't win those arguments with people who don't want to look at the data, you know, I feel like so many people coming from where we're coming from, generally speaking, we've looked at the data. And it's really been disturbing. Yeah, the other people simply don't want to look at the data because I think deep down they either know or suspect that it will undermine their entire worldview.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's great that you're creating this. Um, yeah, I love the idea, and I'll definitely participate. Thank you.
0: Yeah, well, you've got just about a week or so, or ten days to to get to get on on it you know just make your free um your free uh uh substack um uh, blog whatever you want to call that uh, i guess they're also just called substacks so make that and then just put your name with your url for your blog in the comments of the uh of the terrain train um article that i wrote uh, the call to action there and then um yeah that'll help you get some more exposure for what you're doing you could you you can upload you can upload your um, your song. You can upload your video to the platform because you can put video into into um, on the Substack now. And I think people would find it just amazing. And you can you can even do the different language versions. You know, put the upload the the Russian uh, subtitle version, the German one, all of that. I think people would really get a lot out of it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for the encouragement. And I will I will do it.
0: Well, this has been a pleasure. I know that we we could probably talk about a whole bunch of different things. Um, but um, I, I want to respect your time and, I, you know, I want to uh, thank you for, for, for giving us an hour of, of your insight, which is really fascinating because we don't get, you know, here in the United States and, and, you know, what I would loosely call the West as opposed to wherever else, we just don't get a lot of detailed information readily readily available, uh, you know, about what's been going on, especially kind of behind the scenes and in these more, Kind of uh, conspiratorial uh, parts of our experience.
1: <laughs> well, thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Likewise, and maybe we can do it again. Uh, we'll we'll continue to. Uh, I, I have a feeling we'll continue to have some dialogue about other projects. So if if we uh, if we uh, end up doing something else, maybe we can have another chat and have that be about whatever that that thing is.
1: Wonderful. I look forward.
0: Me too. Have a good evening.
1: You too.